Listen as I read God's Word. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word reminds us again of our need for your grace, our need to be reminded that in ourselves and our own strength, these instructions, these commands are just not possible in our own strength, in our own flesh. We have no ability to fulfill the desires that we read. Give us understanding. Give us the power from your Holy Spirit and give us an understanding more deeply of how you've loved us, you've accepted us, and you've poured your grace out upon us as we come to follow and to yield our lives to your truth this very hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe some of you may or may not be uh, golf fans. I sort of play a little bit here and there, but two weeks ago, a guy named Bubba Watson, that's right, Bubba Watson, made history. He won the first of the four major championships in an annual tour for the PGA uh, tournament, and he won the Masters down there in Augusta. He made history, and I'm not just referring to the Masters golf tournament. I think he made history in a couple of other ways. Number one, he probably is the only man who will ever win the Masters tournament named Bubba. I just don't think, maybe any golf tournament in the PGA named Bubba. Um, that's certainly a record breaker. But the second thing, he's probably the only golf pro that has won the Masters and may ever win the Masters or any golf tournament for that matter on the PGA Tour who's never had a lesson. He's never had a golf lesson. Never had a swing coach. Still doesn't to this day. He plays completely by feel, both in his heart, if you saw his reaction after he won the Masters, but also just in his mind as he sees the game and plays it. He's phenomenally gifted, but he's never had those things. And that's very unusual. 99.999% probably of every other person playing or trying to play golf on the PGA Tour has spent endless hours, endless hours listening and learning from a teacher, from a coach, but not every player is able or willing to put into practice all that their coach has taught them. You know, today, James reminds us 
that our walk with God is so much more than just listening to the Word, understanding it. So much more than just that, our faith must also be practiced and not just understood or comprehended. James, in this passage, these verses reminds us about the Word of God being received, first of all, and also practiced. Yes, by His grace and by the power of the Spirit that lives within us, of course, leaning wholly and completely upon Christ as we seek to fulfill His commands. But yet, we've been called to understand, as James reminds his audience and us today, that the Word must first be received. Look at verses 22 through 25. He says, Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. First of all, he says, do not merely listen to the Word in verse 22. He's reminding us that we first must receive the Word. I think James, in one sense, makes a pretty big assumption. The assumption of his readers is that they're at least listening to the Word. They're receiving the Word regularly in their lives. And for even some of us here today, that may be a huge assumption that one would make, even about our own lives. Do not merely listen to the Word. You see, he believed they were listening, they were receiving and and looking and seeking ways for the Word to be received in their lives. And before we can ever do what the Word says, put it into practice, we must know what it says and receive it and hear and seek after it. Now, don't raise your hand when I ask you this question. Uh, because it may be something you're not willing to share, but how many of you would say the last time that you received God's Word, heard it, or received it in some manner, was last Sunday when you heard the sermon last week? If you were to say, oh, that's me, well, that means you went a whole week between receiving the Word and receiving it again. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm so thankful that you're receiving it Sunday to Sunday, But what about the time between those two points? We must regularly receive God's Word. Regularly, daily, often. Allow for the Word to be received into our life. John 17, Jesus was teaching and He reminds us. He says, sanctify them by the truth, for your Word is truth. There's a prayer that Jesus was offering to the Father there in John 17. And he was saying, Father, please sanctify your children by your truth. That's the Word. For that is what will sanctify us, is the Word of God. It's His truth. Christians are people of the Word. We are people of the Word. This is not just any book. It is the book. It is not just any word, it is the word. And our lives depend upon this. Literally, we depend upon God's word that he's given us as a gift, as an opportunity to receive it. So many in the world do not have this word like we do. Freedom and the opportunity that God gives us each and every day to receive his word. You know, Every week, I I desire to want to come and proclaim and to teach 
God's Word. Not my words, but what God's Word says. As we go through this book of James, we're not skipping a few verses or a section that maybe we don't want to have to look at or understand better or deal with. We go through God's Word and we want to understand what He says in all of His Word for us. If we expect to grow in grace and see the reality that Jessica spoke of just a few minutes ago, of God's grace in our life, then we must invest ourselves in the Word of God. Hearing it, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating upon it, receiving it in so many ways, more than just 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Way beyond that. We receive the Word. We receive it, but then James goes on and says, now practice what we receive. Verse 22, he says, do not merely listen, but do what it says. You know, this verse might be the, the thesis statement of the entire book. This one verse. Do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. Putting our faith into action. Putting into practice what we profess, we believe. What we believe, we seek to place ourselves in submission to it, to follow it, to apply it, to practice the very word that we receive. In verses 23 and 24, James illustrates this very point of practicing or not the word that is received by using a very common object. And what does he use in verses 23 and 24 as the common object of illustration? A mirror. A mirror. Did some study, of course, I wasn't thinking clearly this week when I was going into this particular point, but I I realized that mirrors really weren't common in the day when this was being written like we think of a mirror. You see, back then, they, weren't, they did not have these large glass mirrors like we have maybe in our bathroom or our bedroom or somewhere where in our home. They didn't have that. Mirrors were made out of metal, if, any, if you even had one. And they would take the metal and they would shine it and polish it to where you would have some reflection in the metal. And they would place them often horizontally on a table in the home. And so often if you would want to look at yourself in the mirror, you'd have to bend down and look at this piece of metal that was shined and polished to get a a glimpse or a glean of what was being reflected in the shiny metal that had just been polished. And so when James says that we look at his face in a mirror, he's He's thinking about when we look into that mirror and then we look away, that we're not realizing what we see is what needs to be applied. Looking in a mirror only gives a reflection of the outside. It doesn't give a reflection of what's on the inside. And that's what James is trying to get us to understand. It's more than what just is merely on the outside that will help put into practice what we receive in the Word of God. James says, after looking, it says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking then goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. You know, many interpret this particular phrase in verse 23 and 24 as maybe someone who quickly glances into the shiny metal or into the mirror and then after looking quickly then moves on. And by not taking a very long glance, 
then, of course, may forget quickly what one had just seen. But when you look at the original text and how it's written, it's not a quick glance at all, actually. The phrase, looking at himself, is actually a phrase in the original language of one who gives very careful observation and scrutiny at what one is looking at. Very different than what you may think. Very careful observation. So, when James is describing this person that after looking at himself goes away and forgets what he's just seen, he's describing someone who actually, when this person goes away and forgets, it's not that they forgot because they were so quickly looking and glancing and moving on. No, no. They clearly understood what they saw and carefully observed what they saw. But still, they moved on and forgot what they had seen. Very interesting as James describes this kind of a person. Here's a question. In your Christian life, if you counted up how many, if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe many of you have actually been a Christian for many decades. I'm not sure where everyone's point of coming to know God personally is, but if you've been a Christian for a while, if you were to look back over your Christian life, and if you were to count up how, many, how much time that you have received the Word, how many sermons, how much time you've spent listening to sermons, Bible studies, Sunday school classes, conferences, retreats, trainings, all that added up into one number, what do you think it might be? How many hours do you think you might have accumulated in receiving the Word in some shape or some form? Well, I sat there this week and thought about my own life. And I went through from being raised in the church and so forth, and I did, did some math and added up this, that, and the other, how many sermons I listened to Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, then prayer meeting, then Wednesday night, the whole thing. Approximately, maybe, I think I've taken about 20,000 hours so far in my life of receiving the Word. That's a little over two and a quarter years if you go 24-7 and don't stop. So I spent a little over two plus years of my life continually receiving the Word. And I'm a 47-year-old man. Hmm. 20,000 hours. That's a lot of time receiving the Word. And that includes seven years of formal theological and graduate training. That includes that. A lot of time. Here's, the, here's what I think we need to realize for many of us here. Not all of us because not everyone fits in this particular category. But for many of us, it's not that we have not heard or read or studied enough of the Word in our life per se. That is probably still a need for many of us, for all of us to continue to be in the Word. But at this point, even in our Christian life, for many here, it's not so much we haven't heard or read or studied even enough, but we don't put into practice what we've received so far. We really aren't seeking to fully apply what we have received. You know, often Scripture defines knowledge being truly knowledge when it's applied. Then it's applied. Proverbs 13, every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. A prudent, a wise man, a prudent man, he acts out of the knowledge that he receives. One who receives the knowledge of God but does not act upon it, that probably isn't the kind of knowledge God desires. Just to have head knowledge or an understanding in our mind. 
No, God desires through the words of James that we practice what we receive. But then he tells us in verse 25, when we do so, there, when we do so, there will be freedom with blessing that comes. When we put into practice, there will be freedom with blessing. You know, after, scri- after describing this man in the mirror, James then describes the man who doesn't forget what he has heard, and he actually does put into practice what he's received. He says that this man looks at the perfect law that gives freedom in verse 25. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So James says that this man looks at this perfect law and he's blessed because he does not forget, but he puts into practice. You see, what is the perfect law? What's the perfect law? The perfect law is the word that God has given us. His law is perfect. It's the very word which gives us understanding about spiritual freedom that we have because of God's grace. Psalm 19 talks about this perfect law. The law of the Lord is perfect, the psalmist says, reviving the soul. is perfect, absolutely perfect is God's law. Though we cannot meet the requirements, it's still perfect. And it still provides all that we need to understand what God requires and how Christ has met that requirement for each one of us. Freedom in the gospel is really actually, it's a paradox. If you think about it, freedom that we have, it's a paradox. Most people would think that if I have to stay bound by the laws of God, then I would lose my freedom because I just can't stay in those boundaries. They're too restrictive and I always fail. I've tried and tried again and I always fail. I'll lose my freedom. I've lost my freedom. There's no way I can keep and maintain my freedom because the law is too stringent. It requires too much. And I would agree, it does. We cannot in ourselves keep it. But actually, freedom is what we experience when we yield ourselves to God's commands. When we yield ourselves to His truth and we submit our hearts, then we receive by His Spirit the freedom to obey. You know, it's when we ignore God's Word, even though we receive or hear it in some way, and we follow our own desires that we forfeit our freedom. And we eventually might find ourselves in prison by our own desires, our own cravings, even our own self-inflicted hardships. We often find ourselves struggling in that way because though we've heard or received the Word in some way, We kind of just leave it there, leave it aside and not seek to understand how it changes us. And it's there to make, to give and make our hearts more deeply receiving of God's grace. You know, before Christ, we weren't capable of obeying his law. Scripture says we were blind. Scripture says we were deaf to God's truth. We couldn't understand it. We couldn't perceive it. We couldn't receive it in the, in the way that only the power of the Spirit would do by taking the scales from our eyes, by opening up our ears to hear clearly and to see clearly what God's grace really means and what Christ has truly done. Before Christ, we were blind and deaf. And it's the gospel of grace that frees every one of us to obey God's perfect law. 
It's His grace that frees us to obey it. Galatians 5 says, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. We've been set free to obey God's law. That's the freedom we have in Christ. You're free to obey. Before, you were not free to obey God's truth. You could not obey it. You didn't understand it. You didn't perceive it. Much less know how and what it should mean in your own life. And so, freedom comes with the blessing of receiving God's Word, His perfect law, and then submitting ourselves to it. And so, the Word received then reminds us about the Word practiced. You see, James gets even more practical and more explicit in how the Word should be practiced in our life. And he gives three different areas. First, he gives the area of practicing in purity. And in order for us to take these three areas of practice and take the word freely that's implanted in us, as James says, we take these practices so that we might build, in a sense, a greenhouse. A greenhouse, an environment whereby the grace of God's truth would even more deeply have roots. And we would see even greater fruit born in our life because of seeking to apply these practices. In practicing purity, first the word being practiced. Verse 21, Therefore get rid, James says, of all moral filth and evil that's so prevalent. Humbly accept the word planted in you. You know, the idea here of getting rid of all moral filth, getting rid of it, is like taking off one's outer garments, those things that may be possible we don't necessarily need at the moment, the outer garments, as we think, that we might run the race that God has given us in our life of faith. Run the race of faith and not being hindered. Hebrews 12 speaks about this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked before us. So taking off, casting aside, putting off those things that hinder us like moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent around us all the time. In verse 27, he again reminds us in regarding the practice of purity. In the last half of verse 27, he says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. And then he says to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, spiritual pollution is usually very subtle. Think about it. Spiritual pollution is not most often in your face. Sometimes it is, but as far as it becoming part of our daily walk, it subtly creeps in. Spiritual pollution. At least in my life, I know. And before you realize it, it's creeped in and gotten a hold in certain ways or tried to get a hold until you really see it for what it is. It's so subtle sometimes. It moves and like in a way it stops and freezes if you turn to look at it. And then when you turn away, it starts moving again and creeping. And you turn back and it freezes. Pollution in our hearts, pollution in our souls is slow creeping. 
It's kind of like maybe, maybe not for some of you, but maybe for others, the oven in your kitchen. If I were to go to your home right now and open up your oven, would it be spotless? Would it? I'm not going to speak about our oven, but I know this, once you clean your oven, then over time, little drip, by, you know, after a few Thanksgiving turkeys and a few batches of cookies and a few casseroles that bubble over and so forth, you don't realize it, but after a while you open the oven, have you ever done that and go, oh, that's nasty, that oven looks terrible, but you just didn't open it and just it happened after you, the next day after you cleaned it, and then you opened it up the next day, it was like, oh, that's filthy. No, it took months and months over time, slowly, bit by bit, polluted by pollution, just making your oven not such a clean environment. It just takes time until all of a sudden it just hits you when you open it and look at it. Same is true, spiritual pollution in our life. Things that creep in slowly, we just don't realize, and one day we open the door of our heart and we're like, oh, we don't realize how it affects us. Practicing purity is how we take the word, receiving it, and then putting it into practice, but also practicing self-control. Look at verse 19. James says, be quick to listen. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, quick to listen and slow to speak. Again, in verse 26, he says, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, his religion is worthless. Both, verse 19 and 26, the area of self-control that James is addressing is the area of the tongue, the area of our speech, our words. Later on in the book, in a few weeks, we'll get there, Chapter 3, James even more goes deeply into the use of the tongue and what the tongue is all about in the life of a Christian. We'll look at that, but here he's introducing the subject, at least. He's addressing it as an issue of self-control, an issue we need to be careful as believers in seeking to practice what word we have received regarding our tongue. James will expound more later, but here he introduces... How a person uses their words reveals much about what is going on inside. How a person uses their words does reveal much about what is going on inside. Jesus addressed this subject and spoke to it. In Luke 6, verse 45, Jesus said, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. And so if we want to deal with our words, if you want to deal with your tongue, if you want to deal with your language, you deal with your heart. That's what you allow God to deal with, your heart, not so much trying to just limit your speech or change your speech. Certainly there's practical 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 accountability, but it's the heart issue that is the root of our words, is what Jesus is saying. But the second area of self-control is with our emotions, namely, even as he speaks about anger, James says, slow to become angry in verse 19. Take note of this, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Proverbs 29, the wise saying says 
in verse 22, an angry man stirs up dissension and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. Proverbs 29, 22. You know, it's not a coincidence that James addresses both the tongue and the temper at the same time. It's not ironic. or it's, I'm sure it's in some way planned. Why is that? The tongue and the temper. Because they often go hand in hand. Do they not? It's not a coincidence that he addresses these. A person who cannot control their anger almost always is hazardous with their words. We are often hazardous with our words, careless with our words, when emotions are not kept at bay, when they're not checked carefully, when we allow them to run rampant or run freely, then words will fly. I'm sure none of you have had a word fly out of your mouth because of emotion that wasn't kept in check. But when it happens, often it doesn't just stop at the neck. It goes all the way up and out of our mouth. And it's so difficult because they, they're so closely tied together. They're so closely tied together. Our words and our emotions. But James reminds us that we must seek to watch our words and our emotions as we submit to the word that we've received. And then thirdly, he says, we need to be careful to receive the word and to place practice in the area of mercy. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now in the first century around Jerusalem, when James is addressing again his audience, at that time, the social need was very great for orphans and widows since there really was no extensive welfare system in their day like we have even today in our country. There wasn't Medicare or Medicaid. They didn't have all the things that we have set up right now in our government. And so orphans and widows, they were marginalized. They were, on the, they were in a very bad situation. And often, no one looked out for them. They didn't have as many orphanages even as we have today. Places where children are watched over and cared for, even at the very basic levels. And so when James speaks to those in the church and he says, we must watch out for these, these that are unprotected. These are in need of mercy, of care. These who are weaker. These who have, by the circumstance and providence in their own life, been, are now in a situation where they need protection. They need care and concern. You know, Romans 12 describes mercy as a spiritual gift. It's one of, in Romans 12, it lists several spiritual gifts. And as believers, when we are as Christians, we have different giftings. One gifting is in the area of being merciful, being a Christian who is gifted with mercy. Some of you here have that spiritual gift. Hopefully you know who you are, and if you don't, hopefully God will reveal it to you as you study His Word and continue to seek out to employ your gifts. It's not a gift that I have as a primary gifting, mercy. It just isn't. And yet, even though Romans 12 talks about it as a gift, all of Scripture points us to the reality that it's not just a gift, 
it is a responsibility for every believer. All Christians are to be merciful. I'm to be merciful. We're all called to be merciful to others and to people around us, regardless of our gifting and how God has designed you and made you up. We're called to be merciful, not just with those that are conveniently placed in our life, but even in situations that God gives us by His providence that we might make an impact. <clears throat> you know, James specifically mentions orphans and widows in verse 27. But you know, orphans and widows, I believe James wouldn't want us to stop there. I think that's just a starting point. I think it's just a template to understand people in our world and in our community and in our lives that are in need, like an orphan or a widow that are in need, we must be aware and seek to be implements of God's mercy, tools of God's mercy. James is simply giving us a template, not, of course, less than that. Yes, we should seek to help orphans and widows, but also as a template of opportunity for all those who are weak and in need of protection and mercy. The kindness of God expressed through His people. So many of us commit random acts of mercy and yet nobody knows. So many of you commit random acts of kindness and mercy. I hear about them. And yet, no one hardly probably knows that you've committed those random acts of kindness and mercy. But yet God knows. He knows when you are merciful to someone or when you turn the other way. He knows when you are seeking to be kind and generous. He knows that because He is the audience that our hearts should seek to honor and to worship when we are merciful anyway. And James calls us to that. I'm so thankful for so many of you in this body who faithfully and regularly are merciful to those in our own body of believers and in our community. You've, you're faithful and you're regularly seeking to be merciful to those around you. Some of you just exude mercy. You exude faithfulness and kindness and how you live your daily life being always aware and watching out for those needs around you. But then there are also some of us here who need to take a notice more readily of those around us. Need to take a notice and seek how we can be merciful more so to those around us. Probably every day, God puts someone in our vicinity that we could be merciful to in some small way or some signif very significant way. We must be aware. And yet still, there's also another group of us here. What group is that? It's the group of us who need mercy. And we won't let it happen. We need mercy right now. We need the body of Christ to come alongside of our situation. And instead... We don't say a word. Instead, we put on the face. Instead, we don't share what's really going on. What a perfect antidote to that disease 
was Jessica's testimony. That we don't do that. That we let the wall down, let the mask down, that we're willing to receive, to receive someone's help. To put our pride aside, to put those things that keep us from being ministered to. Because think of it this way. When we're not allowing for others to minister to us, we're not allowing them to be blessed. We're preventing the person who blesses us with their kindness, we're preventing that from happening. We're at least hindering it. How much more do we want our brother or sister to be blessed than we would allow for them to bless us with their kindness and being merciful to us? Opportunity God gives us. James says, what an opportunity we have to receive the word, to put it into practice, and to be part of a community of brothers and sisters together who practice the word that has been received by God's grace. Let us do so. Pray with me, would you?